Today's Bible is 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, urges, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near, Therefore, be alert and over sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's good to be with you this morning, um, as I've said, and uh, we pray for you regularly up here in in, uh, Pomprenai. I've known Matt for a long time. When we lived in Swansea, we used to get together quite a lot, and we still get together regularly. Uh, so it's great uh, to be with you today and to spend some time with you in, in your series in 1 Peter 4. I've never been asked, I think, before preaching out to be a part of a, a church's series. So it's, it's a nice change, a nice privilege uh, to be a part of this. I don't know if you want to be honest. I don't know how interactive you are as a church, but if you want to put your hands up, you can. But how many of you come home at the end of the day and you've had a tough day or a tough week and on a Friday night and you say to yourself, it's been such a bad day or such a bad week that I deserve a treat? You can put your hands up on the inside if you're British. <laughs> There's four, four non-British people here put their hands up. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, where we, we say I've, I've had such a, a tough time that I deserve a treat. And in a sense, it's no surprise that during difficult times, times of hardship, times of struggle, that we, we look within and say, I, I need some comfort. I need a response, a positive response following this negative experience. And we seek solace in various ways. The feeling that we deserve some reward because of the pain we've experienced is a common reaction to suffering, maybe as simple as a chocolate bar, maybe something 
at the end of a term for teachers. Most teachers will say, I need a holiday. I need to go away. I need to get out of this country. Many psychological studies have observed the way people sometimes resort to harmful ways to respond to tough situations. It can involve um, behaviors like using drugs or alcohol excessively, engaging in self-destructive behaviors, or habits that are harmful to their well-being. We can respond to tough times positively, positive treats, or also negative rewards. And this idea of self-reward as a, a means of self-care and consolation is very common. We may indulge in pleasurable activities or seek some temporary distractions, and it can provide momentary relief from our pain and from our distress. While some strategies may be helpful, and we can't say that all are not helpful, but some may be helpful, as Christians we must be vigilant of how easily these reward systems can lead us astray into unhealthy and sinful behaviors. And this really is what 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11 is all about. The danger of unhealthy reward systems in response to suffering and the way to, to fill that void that's left behind with a positive outlook, with, a, with something, a positive input as we spend time encouraging one another within the church. Peter is writing, of course, as you've heard over the last few weeks, to Christians who are suffering. They've been scattered from their homes. They've left their support structures, their family lives, their long-term homes, the churches that they've been a part of. And they've been scattered around the world, many of them to modern-day Turkey. And they've lost their support networks. They've lost the church's support systems. The deacons who invested in them when they were struggling, they have been scattered to other parts of the world. And so the pain of these believers is very deep and real. And the temptation for them was to find comfort in this suffering in unhealthy ways. And it's more dangerous and more powerful for them even when, than from when they were back home. As they now have lost all these support structures, as they've scattered around the world, the dangers are amplified. And so in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11, the apostle is expressing how they should properly respond under such trials. And he highlights the temptations that may follow hard on the heels of their suffering. What he does here is he draws a, li a line in the sand between healthy and unhealthy responses to their suffering. So first of all, in verses 1 to 6, he tells them of the necessity of dethroning this quest of our bodies for sinful rewards in response to suffering. You'll notice in verse 1 how he describes this in terms of an armed conflict in which we cannot afford compromise or timidity. Because the desire to reward ourselves sinfully in the face of pain and suffering is both powerful and ongoing. So therefore, we got, he says, we've got to meet that temptation head on 
with all the spiritual metal of a frontline soldier in the trenches. We cannot compromise when suffering comes and then this need for reward kicks in. We cannot compromise at that moment and say, well, it's now okay for me to treat myself with sin, with falling away from the law and commands of God. And so in verse 1, he says, arm yourselves, arm yourselves for war. And don't think for a moment that this is a momentary battle. This desire for sinful rewards following hard on the heels of suffering will last our entire lives. Throughout this section, he repeatedly talks about the coming judgment, the end of all things, being in the presence of Christ, in order to emphasize how long this conflict is going to go on. It's not going to be for a week or a month or a year. It's going to last until we are face to face with Christ. If you've ever been in a war um, zone or watch the news and see people from nations that are going through terrible times of conflict, often citizens who are interviewed will say, how long is this going to last? How long will this go on? And they're looking to political uh, outlooks. They're watching the news. They're analyzing the, the way the wars go in themselves to see if there's any hope, any end to this. Will it last another month, another year, another two years? How long will it be? But in our struggle against sin, there is no end. Well, the end is when we are raised to be with Christ. And so emphasized here is this intensity and ongoing nature of the battle of our flesh, of our bodies, that will be permanently engaged in fighting against these powerful temptations to reward ourselves in sinful ways. Only when our bodies, our flesh, lie in the grave or are caught up to be with Christ will we face no more fiery arrows of temptation from the evil one. And it's this idea that dominates verse 1. As Peter begins to impress upon the people of God the way to overcome this suffering sinful reward urge that we all have. And he draws here a, a remarkable parallel between Christ's sufferings and his response and our sufferings and our response. You heard about this last week in chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. You heard last week about how the, the sufferings of Christ are unique. They're not like ours. God, who is perfectly holy and just, meted out the punishment that we deserve because of our sins upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As lawbreakers, we deserve the justice and the anger of God, but it all fell willingly upon the head of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. The reason suffering and death and all of these things exist within our world is because of the ways in which we have turned our backs upon God. God has said, here is the law. Live within the bounds of this law. Live this 
the joyful life within my commands, a, a, a law of love, a law of life. We say, I don't want to live within the bounds of God's law. I want to live outside in the place of death, the place of suffering, the place of rejection of God. We have all stepped out, the Bible says, outside the law of love and the law of life. And the reason why suffering even exists within the world is because we have broken the commands, the law of the living God. And yet, Christ, 2,000 years ago, steps into our world and he says, though you have rejected me, rejected my Father, rejected my law, rejected life itself, though you have accepted suffering and accepted justice, yet I come to bear your sin upon the tree. I come to take your suffering upon my own body, my own flesh. I come to take your law-breaking in my own suffering upon the, the cross. And it's through faith in him that we, like these Christians written to in this letter, we look away from ourselves and our own power and abilities to try and overcome our own law-breaking. And we look away to Christ and the cross and the blood shed and the sufferings of our Savior and the death upon that tree. And we rest our entire lives upon that unique suffering, the unique death of the Lord Jesus. And all our sin is laid upon him. And we, the unrighteous, the, the lawbreakers, are now declared righteous, law keepers, people who are now live within the love of the eternal God. But although Christ's suffering is unique, because it atoned for our sins, it reconciled us to God, here Peter is drawing parallels between Christ's suffering and the, the suffering of the people here that he's writing to and our suffering as his people. He uses Jesus here in verse 1 as an example of how we are to deal with our own ongoing struggles, with adversity, with temptation, with, with sin and fallenness. And his argument is that just as Christ said on the cross, I'm done with sin. I'm finished with sin. I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to keep suffering, and I'm going to bleed, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected in order to destroy sin once and for all in the lives of my people. So every Christian, Peter is saying here, must follow the example and the attitude of Christ in this moment of our own suffering. For our inclination is to fight our desires to sin up until a point. We might recognize, I've suffered, now I'm tempted with all of these sinful actions, and I'll fight them, and then a few moments go by, and we say, I must fight them for the rest of the evening. But as the evening goes on, we may well collapse. We might not say, I'm done with sin, I'm finished with sin. We, we, we fight it for a moment, we fight it for an hour, we fight it for a week or a month or a year, and then and then we may collapse. But he's saying here we need to think differently towards our sins. We must arm ourselves with the same thought process that Jesus had as he walked up that hill of Calvary. 
where he said, in effect, I will not stop suffering. I will not stop struggling. I will not stop fighting until sin is dealt with fully and finally. So he's saying here we must similarly say, I will not stop suffering, struggling, fighting with my own sins in response to this suffering until this desire to reward myself with unacceptable wickedness has gone, has left me, that I've quenched the fiery darts of the evil one with God's strength. I will not stop until I find my contentment in Christ alone in this period of my life. This is frontline Christian warfare because suffering always weakens us. It lowers our defenses and abilities to fight. But in this weakened state, we are to dethrone our own body, our own flesh's quest, our own desires to reward ourselves with sin by, he says, looking first of all to Christ's example as he climbed that hill. How does the Apostle Paul speak of this? Well, in Romans chapter 6, he says a very similar thing, but he words it differently. He says this, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. This is the attitude that Peter and Paul are calling for to say sin wants to reign, sin wants to rule in this moment of temptation following on from my suffering by God's grace following Christ's example looking to him and his strength do not let it reign do not reward yourself with sin in response to suffering I love that line in Wesley's hymn perhaps the best line of any hymn ever written in my opinion he breaks the power of cancelled sin I remember as a child, I was absolutely confused by that line. I remember going to my dad and saying, what on earth does that mean? He hasn't got a clue what he's talking about, this Wesley guy. What do you mean he breaks the power of cancelled sin? If it's cancelled, if it's gone, why does he need to break the power of it? And yet over time, it's one of the most precious lines of all. Yes, Christ has finished. He's cancelled the believer's sin. He's completed the work he set out to do. He's forgiven us. He's washed us clean. But like some, some enemy insurgent, it's always trying to come back and rule and reign and master us and overpower us. As Wesley says, Christ, the Lord, he must break that power of sin that's already been cancelled. By God's strength, in his grace, we too can, by his work, overcome sin. Sin will tell us in our moments of, weak, of, of weakness, 
in our moments of extreme suffering, sin will tell us wrongly, but it'll seem like a powerful argument. Sin will tell us, you can't beat me. I rule you. You've got to follow me. You've always followed me. You always will follow me. You've got to follow me now. You've got to obey my temptation. You have no choice. It doesn't rule. It's been canceled. It's been forgiven by the sufferings of Christ on the cross. So in order to dethrone that desire for sin, we must first look to Christ as Savior, and then we secondly must look to Him as an example. I will not give in because I'm done with sin. I've finished with sin. But then he also urges another quite odd method of accomplishing this overcoming. If you look at verse 3, he says, we must also look to our past lives, our lives before we were born again. He reminds them there of how fallen they once were, how given over to sin they once were pre their conversion to Christ. He asks, don't you remember? Don't you remember your life before? How you gave yourselves to sensuality, to passions, to drunkenness, to orgies, to drinking parties, to lawless idolatries. Remember those days? Didn't you get enough back then? Didn't you have your fill of sin? Haven't you wasted enough time of your lives living that life of death? against the Lord of heaven, the one who loved you and made you? Of course you did. You've had more than enough. So as you look back, don't, don't go back. Don't feast again on, on such evils in reaction to your sufferings now. You've had your fill. I think it's the same argument as parents often use at Christmas. Um, Sorry, it's the middle of July, I talk about Christmas. Not a great time for talking about it, but at Christmas, isn't it? Um, remember my parents, I'd, I'd have a turkey dinner with all the, all the trimmings, and then we'd have this great Christmas pudding, and then maybe open some chocolate from the Christmas presents, and then this is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you see that open box of Quality Street. It's like, oh, just have some more, just have some more. And the parents would come, and they'll say, it's time to stop. You've had enough. You've had your fill. You're going to be sick. You're like, oh, it's just one or two. I'll just have one, one or two more. Just sneak some more. And then just, just 20 more. And then, oh, there's only two left in the tin. I might as well finish it off. And you finish off the tin and then you vomit. Because you've had more than your fill. You've had your fill and then some and then some more. And this is the argument that Paul is, uh, Peter is using here. You've had enough of sin already. Why keep feasting on one more evil? One more, two more, 20 more. You're a, you're a Christian. You've been converted from this. You're not dogs who return to their vomit. Look to Christ. Look to his example. Look to your old way of life and be done with this nonsense, this sin, this evil, this wrongdoing. These things, in verse 3, remain a timeless problem within the church of Christ. Lust, 
in response to suffering. Pornography, drunkenness. These are all things that often serve as reward systems, even for God's people struggling with adversity and anguish and problems. But friends, if that's you, that they're not a positive reward. And in the end, they won't actually relieve your suffering. They only add to your suffering. They add to your suffering the sufferings of guilt and shame. They add the sufferings of having to be a closed book in front of others as you try and hide these shameful actions from others. They add the sufferings of fear and loneliness to you in the battle against your sin. We need to see that. We need to grasp that as God's people. Sin doesn't add anything to us. It doesn't help us. It doesn't relieve our pain in any sort of way. It just keeps adding and adding and adding to our pain and destroying us from the inside out. And yes, all your friends from this world will argue that your actions, your sins are justifiable under such adversity. Of course you should do that. Of course you need that. Of course you should go here. Peter talks about here, doesn't he, how people will join in mocking you in your pursuit of following Christ and not giving in to immediate bodily satisfaction. But there's coming a day, he says, when God will judge the living and the dead. And it's only those who have found the joy of spiritual satisfaction in Christ, who have been caught up with the joy of knowing Him, and not those who have given in to those fleshly desires who will be able to stand on that day. This is the reason, he says in verse 6, that the gospel has always been historically good news. It's an unusual way of wording this, but it is helpful because verse 6 is saying that though Christians throughout the ages, those who have now died, they've been mocked for loving Christ, for hating their sin, for arming themselves against temptation in times of suffering. Yet now, they are enjoying the presence of God in Christ. The one that they loved on earth, they now are enjoying the realities of what Peter is encouraging all people in the present to to do and to be. Judged by men on earth as sinners for not joining in with the lusts and passions of the world, but judged by God as a chosen people, as we've heard, as we've sung about As a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Yes, friends, the whole world may judge us as stupid, as pathetic for not giving in. But God will judge us as a holy possession, a special possession. And so while our world and while our culture urges us to find our identities in their own fallenness, the fallenness of a lost world... We look to our own past. We say, I don't want that identity anymore. I look to Christ and I say, I want to be identified with him. I want the joy of following and knowing and living for him. And so, friends, we must dethrone this body's quest, this body's passion 
for sinful rewards. But then secondly, in verses 7 to 10, he encourages us to promote the body's vital need for community. You know, at this point, we might well be thinking, well, I've responded to suffering by not giving myself to the sinful reward schemes that have been offered to me. By God's grace, I've counted myself dead to sin. In times past, I would have given in to this temptation in response to this suffering. But by God's grace, I haven't this time. But it's left a vacuum. I'm on my own here. I'm still struggling. I need something to fill this gap, this need that I have for comfort <clears throat> and strength in this moment of adversity. And indeed, it would be unrealistic to live a life in a vacuum. <clears throat> Living in a room, if you like. Imagine this room, and it's been emptied of all unhealthy behavior. And there's nobody here, and we're standing here all on our own. We're looking around for comfort and strength. Trying to live a Christian life in a vacuum, in an empty room, is in itself unhealthy and self-destructive. But what Peter offers in this section is there is something that can fill this vacuum, this void, that will help us through these dark times. Picture yourself in this empty room. Then see it gradually being filled with people, one by one, friendships that you have, genuine connections with others. As each person enters this room, the room begins to fill with warmth and laughter and shared experiences. Conversations flow, offering you support and understanding and encouragement. With each new friend, the room is transformed into this vibrant space, brimming with shared joys and shared sorrows and memories. These friendships they bring a perspective on your suffering. They bring diverse interests. They bring the sense of belonging into your life. They bring counsel. They bring a safe space to share your vulnerabilities and your temptations with. A healthy and godly life cannot be lived in isolation. It cannot be lived in an empty room. But it's enriched by genuine deep friendships with other people of like mind. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, fill that void, not with sin. Fill that need for comfort, not with temptation and fallenness, but fill it with the church. Fill it with God's people. Fill it with connections with others of like mind. A place where Everyone speaks and serves one another so that each other's gifts are, are, are used to help us endure our suffering, to overcome temptation, a place where we can prayerfully uphold each other in our times of need, where we can speak into each other's lives words of gospel, words of grace, words of Christ, and so that in that void suddenly the good news of the gospel begins to fill that ache that we have. 
Because the very real and present danger is that because sin is so embarrassing, we feel we must close, all, close it all up, hide it all away, and become some kind of lone ranger believer riding through the desert of temptation. But Peter says you can't be like that. Fill the void with the people of God. The danger for all churches as we become used to one another is that we can forget the reason that God has joined us together within a body. Why are you in the Bridge Church? Why have you become a member? Why are you part of this church? He has joined you all so that you can become a fully armed, ready-to-go mutual support network so that you can find in the church the most positive place to be whenever you suffer. A place of prayer, a place of support, a place of gospel. And even when you fall and you collapse under the severest of temptations and you, you want to close it all up and hold it all in and hide it from everybody, you can bring it to brothers and sisters in the church and say, I have messed up. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? So that we don't become people who hold it all in here, but a church that supports and helps one another. This, I think, lies at the heart of Peter's thinking for these scattered and persecuted believers. He's saying, yes, you've lost your home churches. Yes, you've lost the support of elders and deacons and your, your family. Find other believers, he's saying. Other Christians to join with. Don't try and go it alone because you won't get through. Join yourself with a church. You know, when he earlier described them in chapter 2 as this, as we've said already, this holy nation, this chosen people, he says, remember that. You are not a person. You are a people. You are not an individual. You're part of a wider body, a treasured possession of Christ. And so he's saying, love one another. Be hospitable to each other without grumbling. Invite each other around your homes. See yourself not just as a lonely body of flesh and blood struggling with adversity, but as a spiritual collective body of Christ where you support one another through this difficult time. In dethroning sin, we must also promote the necessity of the church community. It's important, it's vital to our long-term health and development. But then there's one last thing he tells them here, and it's in verse 11. He gives an umbrella reason for dethroning sin and promoting the church in your life. And he tells them whatever they do, they must align their own desires and the church's desires with the divine purpose. Verse 11, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In suffering, you respond to adversity by saying, I don't want to sin. I want to be with God's people. Why? Because I want to glorify 
the name of my God. I want his name to be honored and praised. This is at the heart of living a healthier spiritual life. It's not just about me and my sin or me and my suffering or me and my church. It's about what is God's purpose in it all. And his purpose in it all is that his majesty and his beauty might go around Pomprenai and Cardiff and Wales and the world. For the greatest demonstration of God's glory is that God's people faithfully suffer like the Son of God. Remember the cross. The cross of Christ is the greatest demonstration of the beauty and glory of God. As the Son of God bleeds and dies, taking justice and anger and righteousness upon himself, but displaying love and mercy and grace, all the glorious characteristics of God, every one of them, are displayed upon the Lord Jesus as he dies and suffers upon the cross. If you want to see glory, look at the cross. If you want to see the beauty and majesty of God, look at the sufferings of Christ. And it's when we reflect him in our present suffering by being done with sin, by supporting others in their walk with God, by suffering alongside each other, by weeping when others weep, when rejoicing when others rejoice, when, when we do this walk, this life together, there the glory of God is being displayed in our present world. The cross of Christ is being seen in our present world, just as it was 2,000 years ago. Because then it shows that our lives have been transformed by that work of Christ. That his suffering for our sin has had a deep and eternal effect upon us. That the gospel is effective. That Christ has succeeded. That weak people like all of us are can not only survive suffering, but thrive in suffering as we support one another. And so he gives this overarching purpose in all that we do, both in dethroning and promoting, before looking away from ourselves and our past and looking to Christ and his accomplishments in all that we do, this overarching motivation and desire should be ours, that we live in all circumstances for the praise and the glory of our God who has made an end of all our sin. So, brothers and sisters, dethrone sin by the power of God. Promote the church around you by being involved, by being open and honest with one another and praying and supporting with those who weep. But ultimately, align yourself with the ultimate glory of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you. We do not know what each one is going through at this present moment, but we thank you for this first epistle of Peter that you have inspired to encourage us in our suffering, to recognize that it is a reality in our world and in our own lives, that it will be an ongoing reality for the rest of our existence here on earth. We thank you for that coming day when all tears shall be wiped away. We shall be in your presence and know 
your overcoming grace, that we will be in a place with no more suffering, no more sin, no more loss, and no more pain, but all will be for the glory of your name. Until that day, we pray that we might be small reflections of that glorious majesty of your holy name, that you would shine through us and reflect out into our world from our lives the beauty of Christ, the wonder of the gospel, and the success of the cross of our Savior. So help us and be with us and wipe away our tears and help us to support each other, we ask. And may Jesus be seen in it all and your name glorified. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.